for almost every poet in the 19th century. And it's, it's very conversational. It's very intimate. It's very private. Um, it's also very angry. And uh, anger is still an emotion forbidden to women. Elizabeth Ranker in Columbus, Ohio. It is March 5th, 2021. And I have the pleasure today of talking to Karen L. Kilcup. Karen is the Elizabeth Rosenthal Excellence Professor of English, Environmental and Sustainability Studies and Women and Gender Studies at UNC Greensboro. She has published numerous volumes and editions and anthologies on topics related to the environment, women's writing, American poetry and poetics, and children's poetry, but that by no means covers her uh, vast um, record of scholarship, as well as her many topics in teaching and uh, writing for a public audience. She's also the past president of the Society for the Study of American Women Writers, and she's the editor of ESQ, a journal of 19th century American literature and culture. I mentioned a minute ago that she also works on some topics of great public interest, and I wanted to mention that she is now working with graduate students to prepare an online open access anthology of nature writing and environmental writing for children called The Envious Lobster. And maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that today. But my first question for Karen, who is uh, one of the first wave Piat scholars I'm talking to as part of this series of oral histories and written memoirs. Um, and I'd like to ask Karen, Karen, how did you first come to hear of Sarah Piat? Well, first, Elizabeth, I want to thank you for that gracious introduction and this opportunity to talk about Piat because, uh, as you know, I'm so fond of her work and, and really admire her tremendously. I actually write about this indirectly in a recent essay for this year's Concord Saunterer, which is the Journal of the Thoreau Society. And I won't go into how it, it came to be there, but um, I remember very vividly my introduction to Piat which occurred at the June 1992 Nathaniel Hawthorne Society Conference at Concord Academy in Concord, Massachusetts. Paula Bennett had recently uh, started working at Southern Illinois University. And I was friends with her colleague, Lee Person, who said to me, you have to meet my colleague, Paula. I think you will, you guys will get along really well. Well, of course, I knew Paula's work. Uh, I was entirely daunted by her scholarly reputation, but we hit it off immediately. We found we shared a passion for recovery work. And in the course of our, of our conversation, she told me about Piat and described some of the, the poetry. So 
following that conversation, when I got home, she sent me some Pia poems to choose from because we had talked about the anthology I was working on at the time, 19th century American women writers. And she sent me a group of, uh, a really generous group of Piat poems uh, from which to choose. And the first poem that I read, I think, was Giving Back the Flower, which just knocked me over. So modern in sensibility and voice. And uh, among that group, my other uh, favorite is, I think, The Funeral of a Doll, which I hope we can come back to because I think it's one of Piet's best poems and it's one that kind of sneaks up on you. All right, so um, one of the kinds of stories that um, I know our listeners are very interested in is this whole phenomenon of how a writer is rediscovered. The stories of how someone is lost and then reclaimed. Uh, and as you and I are both aware, these are stories that are being told all over uh, public culture at the present time, as in the case of the New York Times series of obituaries um, for women they did not cover the first time. And um, I'm sure you have a lot of conversations with people you meet, as do I, about um, you know, what, well, what happened to these women? Um, and uh, I happen to have a lot of conversations in particular about Sarah Piat, but you have been such a force in scholarship for recovering uh, women's writing more generally. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit, first of all, about that larger scholarly work that you've done, recovering women writers. And then maybe we can move to more of a focus on Sarah and, and talk about some of those poems you mentioned. That would be great. And I actually, before we had this conversation, I went back to each of my books that references Pian in some way. And so I think it would be great to be able to touch upon that more specifically. My recovery work really began as I think it, it has begun for so many of us with my teaching. Uh, at, at the time, I was, well, when I first started my academic career, I was teaching some women writers, but of course, you know, like many people, I was trained in the canon. So when I took an American Renaissance course, there was not a woman to be found. And that includes Emily Dickinson. Uh, I was told that Harriet Beecher Stowe was popular trash. Uh, later on, I was told that regionalist writing, writers like Sarah Orne Jewett, Rose Terry Cook, even Kate Chopin were simply very limited regionalists. So the, what motivated me to get started in really in earnest was preparing at the time mimeographed copies of women's writing to supplement my, the anthologies that were at the time essentially all male writers. And um, I spent a whole summer, <laughs> and this was long before we had scanners, long before we had the internet. Uh, I spent a whole summer in the unair conditioned wing of Yale University, their American wing of their library. And I read every single woman writer that I could find 
in that um, in that wing. I want to note that it was a hundred degrees that summer, so recovery work was was arduous in many ways. I came home after that summer with a tall four drawer filing cabinet full of photocopies from which to distill uh, an anthology of women writers. But that anthology became the basis for my teaching at the University of Hull and has, I've used it ever since. All right, so one of the parts of this whole story that is really riveting, I think, for people who are interested in this topic and also of tremendous use for other scholars doing this kind of work is the question about where you find stuff. And, you know, we live in an age, as you know, from being a teacher where there are a lot of kind of default assumptions that you just go to Google and everything's there. And of course, when you're doing this kind of work in primary sources, you know, that is by no means the case. And the detective hunt part of the work that we do is something that people find very interesting. So your story about going to Yale and working in the 100 degree library, just looking at sources and making copies, that's a, it's a really interesting story. And I wonder if we could just unpack that a little. So those early um, copies you were making to use in teaching, and then if I understood correctly, they were sources for your um, Blackwell anthology, right? Yes. And just so our listeners know, I have the book right here on my desk. It's called 19th Century American Women Writers and Anthology, edited by Karen L. Tilcup, if you'd like to find it. And it is a hefty volume of 500 plus pages, uh, closer to 600 actually. And um, this is partly what I meant earlier when I said that Karen has done a vast amount of groundbreaking work on recovering women writers more generally. And Piat is one of the writers she has worked on and returned to multiple times. So that's why I wanted to capture both these elements of Karen's research. So when you were looking at those sources, Karen, did you have sort of um, an order of attack? Like, did you start with anthologies? Did you start with newspapers? Did you start with literary magazines? How did you think about where to look to find things? Well, I actually started with single author volumes because that was the method that was most readily available, right? So you could yeah. just go from A to Z yeah. in the American wing. Uh -huh. Um, I will say that in doing that work, mm -hmm. I was guided uh, partly by suggestions from colleagues, because when I knew I was going to put this anthology together, mm -hmm. I wrote, and I mean wrote, I did not email, I wrote mm -hmm. to colleagues uh, across the country, and in fact, in Europe as well, asking for their suggestions. What writers were they teaching and reading and writing about that they really wanted me to look at for inclusion in this anthology? And I'll just give you one really notable example of the, the generosity of scholars uh, in, in helping me focus a bit. Uh, Nell Irvin Painter, the distinguished African-American historian at Princeton, sent me actually a copy of the what she took to be the really authentic version of Sojourner Truths 
ain't I a woman speech. And that's how that version came to be in my anthology alongside the more familiar version. Uh, wow. So that was, that was one really important um, element in recovery. A second important element was simple serendipity. You cannot have that kind of serendipity when you're looking at online databases because you, you can be going along a library shelf and you, you might find something that you didn't even know about or that it's, it's not cataloged in, in the right way. And so um, many of the things that I came upon were just marvelous surprises. Wow. Um, and then, of course, once I sort of narrowed things down and found writers whom I found compelling, I also uh, went to the magazines, which often had uh, much more innovative work than some of the single author volumes because publishers wanted to be sure, of course, that they, they sold. Mm. Now, um, this is kind of a side note, but um, our listeners will see that elsewhere in this series of recorded interviews, I spoke with um, the former curator of Rare Books here at The Ohio State University, who, um, with whom I worked to, to start our um, Piat collections here at Ohio State. And in, in my years of working with him, I always found that he had a phrase that I loved and I use in my own teaching now, which is um, getting at the phenomenon where you're working with these old materials, as you were in that American wing at Yale. And because so few people have actually used these books, because they have become forgotten in some sense, a lot of times you find stuff stuck in there by a reader from 1880 or whatever. And my colleague, Jeff Smith, always calls this, his phrase is junk in books. And I say to my students, it's just like today, like you use some random thing for a bookmark. Um, you know, you have, you're reading your mail, you stick a letter in there, and it's, it's not uncommon to find things tucked in books. And one of my favorite stories about this, which I'll tell just recently, is I was over in, in my rare books library here preparing a class on archival research methods for my undergrads. And I was using something the library had recently acquired. It was an account book um, from the early 19th century. So just for our listeners, this means this person was a, a merchant of some kind and was keeping a lot of tabulations about sales and receipts. And, and people might say, oh my gosh, why would you look at that? And the answer is, well, because I'm a total nerd and I love this stuff. But I was paging through it and I came to a page where there was someone's business card was sitting in there. And you're supposed to be very careful with these items because they're fragile. So I very gingerly turned the card over before I turned the page. And on the back was a, an autograph of Nathaniel Hawthorne. <laughs> right. Now, if you could all see Karen now, you'd see what she's doing. So that's a great example. And then, you know, I was so excited. I thought I would stop breathing. Um, but that's a good example of junk in books. Uh, so it, when you, do you recall, Karen, when you were looking through all those volumes, did you, were you, and also, of course, marginalia, right? Books that were owned by people. So do you have any stories about uh, junk in books from this project of yours? I have too many stories. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I'll just try to stick with two. Um, the first is one of the writers I had determined to look at is the uh, Chinese-Canadian writer, um, 
Onato Watana. Well, that was her pseudonym. And Yale had a copy of her novel, The Japanese Nightingale, in beautiful condition. Well, I opened it up and who had signed it? The author. Oh my so, gosh. So uh, the Yale librarians got really sick of me bringing materials upstairs and saying, this needs to be in special collections. So that's one example. Um, you, your earlier comments actually also reminded me of another way that I had to approach recovery work, especially when I did my Native American women writers anthology. But more generally when approaching women of color, which was to do research in the archives. Uh, Buffalo Bird Woman, I think was, uh, I got a lot of material from, I wanna say the Minnesota Historical Society and they were fantastic in helping. But the one I wanna to point to that I think you will love was when I was doing the edition of uh, Domestic Servants uh, Lorenza Stevens Bourbonneau's travel diary, European travel diary, where she went on the grand tour with her family, the Francis Cabot Lowell II family. Uh, and they went to the Great Exposition in London and they went all over Europe. At any rate, she kept these little pocket diaries throughout her trip. And uh, when I went to the Massachusetts Historical Society, I was reading through them and transcribing them carefully. And a lot of them have these little inner compartments. I mean, they're, many of them are smaller than a cigarette packet. And one of them, when they were um, in France, Switzerland, it was right around that area. Um, I opened it up and inside there were two items that shocked and amazed me. One was a flower, pressed, pressed flower that she had gathered at the foot of Mont Blanc. Oh my gosh. And oh, the second wow. was a baby tooth that belonged to the little boy that she was caring for, Eddie Lowell. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. You know, that's amazing. Very close to Eddie. And in fact, he, he communicated to her while he was on his honeymoon. Wow. So. Yeah, that's a great story. Boy. Um, and, you know, those things, not only do they have this kind of affective power, um, something you wrote about in your recent uh, book, uh, Who Killed American Poetry, which I hope we'll talk about as well. They have this kind of affective power. But um, from a much more uh, practical standpoint, sometimes they help you date. They help you date things. Um, so it, it's it, these are rather really useful examples, I think, of this kind of detective work when um, that, that's involved for a scholar like yourself who's, who's genuinely discovering new things and bringing them to attention. Um, can you tell us a little bit, just I want to back up for a minute to a detail of something you said and then go back to your Blackwell. Did I hear correctly that you said that when you were a student, Emily Dickinson was not yet being studied as a canonical poet? Well, I wouldn't say she was not being studied as a canonical poet. Okay, tell us was, a about that. Yeah. There, I had two professors in grad school, one of whom was 
very much enamored of Emily Dickinson, but Walt Whitman was his, his true love. Okay. We spent a lot more time on Whitman than we did on Dickinson. Uh, the other professor, however, who was a well-known American, a scholar, scholar of the American Renaissance and beyond, uh, we did not read Dickinson. Okay. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to return to that detail was because um, Dickinson has come up in some of the other interviews yeah. of the series. And as you know, for very good reasons. Um, and in case we have uh, someone listening to this interview right now who hasn't listened to the others, I'll just mention briefly, and then I'd love to hear your take on it, Karen, that um, when I teach uh, Sarah Piott, I often uh, also talk about Dickinson because I find that the two of them make a very useful pair of women poets to talk about. My students have always heard of Emily Dickinson, first of all, and to talk about how early Dickinson achieved canonical status relative to other women writers, I think is very interesting to them and very useful, as well as to talk about why. And, um, you know, I would like to uh, hear your thoughts about um, two topics, Karen. These are big topics, so we'll get to them as we can. One, what would be your assessment given all the work you've done on women writers? Is there any way that we can, um, we can talk about why it happened for Dickinson before it happened for other women writers? That's one question. Is there some way to explain that to our, our audiences? Um, and um, I have lost the trail of uh, thought for my second question, but I will find it again. So let's start with that. Why did, why did Dickinson make it earlier than other women writers? Well, I think a really important reason was that she had champions very early on. And those champions continued to work on her writing to produce editions of her writing. I'm talking now, of course, about Thomas Wentworth Higginson and Mabel Loomis Todd. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Higginson wrote reviews. The, the two of them wrote really, actually, I think quite helpful introductions to Dickinson's poetry, despite the fact that they regularized it in ways that many of us find nauseating. Um, but it helps to have a champion. And I think that they helped perpetuate her relationship and just at least keep her in the public long enough for scholarship to catch up with her. The other thing, as you know, as I talk about in Who Killed American Poetry, was that the standards for American poetry were changing at exactly the moment that she surfaced uh, in the public eye. And so it's, it's really quite interesting because she became, I think, a popular favorite long before she became uh, an academic favorite. And ironically, and, and maybe oddly, that popularity helped preserve her uh, until we could acquire the interpretive tools in academe and the openness to really see her for the genius that she is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, you know, I, 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 um, 
was also this this brought back to me my second question that I had uh, briefly gotten distracted from, which was, you know, as you well know, working on such a um, a an extensive group of women writers who vanished. Uh, I wondered if you could could um, talk to our listeners today a little bit about at least in the the broad brushstrokes. Um, whether you think there's some general way to account for that. I, I often say to my students, you know, um, we do need to take every recovery case. In some ways, we need to go deep into the research and tell each story separately because they're all going to be different somehow. But it's possible we can make some historical generalizations that are still accurate. So, um, for example, um, there are uh, many scholars who have said in print that there was a widespread uh, vanishing, disappearing of women writers early in the 20th century. And this ties back to what you were just saying about the changes you talk about in, in Who Killed American Poetry, that there was a widespread vanishing of women writers and that that only starts getting rectified basically in around the 1970s and then with increasing force in the 80s with the canon wars and the culture wars. I was wondering whether you, um, whether you are comfortable with that narrative. Do you feel that in general it's accurate? And um, do you have any other um, comments or particular cases from among the women writers you've talked about that um, might be good examples of why they vanished and why they came back? Well, it's, it's such an interesting and complex question. I mean, obviously I can't give a, a very full answer in a short period of time, but um, I want to say that many of the women didn't vanish in the way that we think they did, which is to say they vanished in literary circles, in more elite circles, in academic circles. Mm -hmm. They were very prominent in popular culture. They appeared in school readers. Mm -hmm. There's a book, and, and I'm now referring, I wish I had uh, had a chance to give you the exact title, mm -hmm. but in my Robert Frost and Feminine Literary Tradition, I reference a, uh, it's a pedagogical book composed by a Yale professor. And I want to say it's in the 1920s and all the women regionalists are there. Wow. I mean, a lot of the names that, that we have quote unquote recovered were being taught. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very so, important. Yeah. And, and were visible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and I also think that you know, just among ordinary people. I mean, I look to my own family. You know, I grew up in the 50s. God, I'm old. <laughs> but um, I had great aunts and uncles who were born in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And they had anthologies, probably including Stedman's anthology, an American anthology published in 1900, mm -hmm. that had a lot of the writers mm -hmm. that we, you know, now think of rather highly today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and, you know, also I have to say, and I, I say this also in the Frost book, 
that the the male writers were not at all averse to, well, I'll say borrow from their female counterparts. Uh, Robert Frost's poem design echoes a much earlier poem, but it was in, the, the poem was in Stedman's American Anthology called The Mariposa Lily by California Poet Laureate, Ina Coolbreath. Yeah, yeah. You know, his virtues is, I think reprises in some ways, obviously it's, I think it's a much better poem Lucy Larkham's Swinging on a Birch Tree, which I talk about in the book as well. Mm -hmm. Lucy Larkham was a student of Robert Frost's dear friend, Susan Hayes Ward, who edited The Independent, where he published his first poem. Mm -hmm. So these links are everywhere if we look for them. Um, they're not necessarily obvious. And a lot of time, I think the male writers didn't necessarily mention them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've kind of gotten off on a, on a no, little- No, no, that's, that's, very, that's very important. And it takes us to another topic I wanted to discuss with you today that also links um, the broader arena of scholarship that you work in with the specific case of Sarah Piat, which is the whole phenomenon of um, so-called children's poetry. So I, I want to sort of pose a just I'll just pose a few questions about that and then just ask you if you might talk about it in a general sense. First of all, I'll mention again for our listeners that um, you and uh, Angela Sorby have published an anthology of 19th century American children's poetry called Over the River and Through the Wood, including the works of many poets, including Sarah Piat. And um, one of the things that comes up frequently when I teach Piat is um, we always have our eye on where the poems were first published. So of course, as Paula Bennett pointed out in her pioneering work, um, Piat was publishing in, in a lot of different periodical venues, including newspapers, political newspapers, including elite literary magazines, but also publications for children like Youth's Companion. Um, and sometimes you get a great sense of cognitive dissonance in the classroom when you look at the content of the poems that are being published in the vehicles for children. And to a, you know, to one of our contemporary readers, you just think, oh my gosh, that's completely the wrong venue. Um, but could you talk a little bit to our listeners, Karen, about the, the culture of publishing poems for children during the years of Sarah's career? Like, you know, what do we make of a woman poet who's publishing at all these different um, niches in the marketplace? Well, she was doing what so many 19th century writers did, but especially American women uh, many of whom had to earn their living, like Lucy Larkham, uh, which is to say they published wherever and whenever they could. Now, Sarah is a kind of a, an interesting and, and somewhat different case in as much as, unlike some of the poets who published children's poetry, and I, I need to 
say go back at some point and say a little bit more about the trajectory of children's poetry over the century because it's not uniform as you might expect. But uh, for Sarah, I think what makes her work so powerful for me and, and for Angela as well, and why we included 13 of her poems in our collection is that she is a virtuoso cross writer. That is to say, she can write poems that speak very differently to children and to adults. And the funeral of the doll is perhaps um, the best exemplar of that. Uh, now, let me give you another example, because I've just been working with this uh, as I work on The Envious Lobster, and that is William Cullen Bryant's To, to a Fringed Gentian, which almost everyone credits with being first published in his, I think it's 1832 poems, if I'm getting it right, but was first published in the Juvenile Miscellany in 1828. So he and, and so many other writers were publishing in venues for children or uh, like the Carey sisters who published a single author, well, a, a twin author volume, if you will. Oftentimes those poems would be just that, that appeared originally in a children's venue would be published just as poems in a collected works. So there was no sort of hard and fast distinction between the two audiences in the same way that we make those distinctions. I think that was a, a later in the century uh, phenomenon. Okay. Yes, now you said you wanted to return to the trajectory of children's poetry over the well, century. That's, that, the point yeah, you that, to that was the point, right, that I wanted yeah. to make. I also did want to say that uh, Piat is cross-writing not just for children and adults, but she's also cross-writing for popular and literary audiences, yeah, yeah. for male and female audiences. Yeah. So it's much more complicated than just um, yeah. you know children, adult. Yes. Now, um, a few minutes ago, you said maybe this is a good time to go back to it. That you hoped we would be able to talk a little bit about the funeral of a doll. Okay. Is, it, is this uh, is this a place where you might want to pull into that poem? And because uh, again, our our listeners um, likely don't know this poem. And one of the things I'll say about our series more generally is that um, as I have the pleasure of talking to different people, uh, when an and a particular poem comes up, sometimes um, I, I pull my volume down from the shelf and I open to the poem, and it gives us a chance to at least read a few lines to people who are unfamiliar with the poem, give them a sense of what's happening in some of these poems. Um, and it's a great way to introduce unfamiliar um, uh, listeners who are unfamiliar with these poems to the idea of how Sarah writes and why the poems are interesting. So um, I just uh, yanked my um, copy of uh, Paula Burnett Bennett's selected edition of Sarah's work called Palace Burner, which came out in um, 2001. And um, for any listeners who might want to grab a copy of this book, um, you'll also see that she follows each poem with um, the, po the, the date of publication 
Uh, in this case, the funeral of a doll was published in a Washington, D.C. newspaper called The Capital in 1872. And one of the reasons that's significant is that that was a, a political newspaper. And it's very, very rare now. It's hard to find. So let me mention also for interested listeners, uh, we at Ohio State have digitized every issue of that newspaper uh, during the years um, that Sarah was publishing in it and the years that it was being edited and managed by her cousin by marriage, Don Piat, that's D-O-N-N, two N's. Don Piat, who was an extraordinarily famous writer and journalist uh, during the Civil War and Reconstruction. He too has almost completely vanished from public memory, but he was a very important figure. So you can find the Capitol uh, on the web now, free to the public, digitized by Ohio State, and you can see Sarah's poems in it, and this would be one of them. So, so Karen, you said earlier um, that you, you hoped maybe we'd talk a little bit about the funeral of a doll. I've given people a sense of, um, a sense of when the poem appeared, and um, you wanna talk about it a little bit and tell people want some of the reasons it's of interest? Sure. Well, I think this is this poem is a tour de force. It's a tour de force of managing different voices. It speaks to the tradition of child death poems in the 19th century and uh, transforms that tradition. We usually think of it as beginning with Lydia Stigerny, but there were many others who wrote child death poems throughout the century. Uh, but this poem has multiple voices and one really has to read it over and over and over again to hear those voices and to hear the moments when the voices shift. One of my favorite features of the poem, oddly enough, because it's about a funeral, about a, ostensibly of a doll, but not really of a doll, is it's very funny. And I think that Pia does not get enough credit for her humor. Now, obviously I, it's very dark humor, uh, but she's not the only amusing, uh, well, uh, amusing woman poet in the 19th century. I mean, one thinks of Lydia Sigourney's um, To a Shred of Linen or Phoebe Carey's Samuel Brown, which parodies Annabelle Lee, which is hysterically funny. But here, you know, we get, we get a stanza that appears to be, the first stanza, it appears to be a pretty straightforward account uh, by an adult uh, about a child having a funeral for her doll. And then we get to the second stanza. And the second stanza is, uh, th there's evidence of a shift in tone earlier retrospectively, but you only get it retrospectively. So the speaker says, her funeral, it was small and sad. Some birds sang bird hymns in the air. The hummingbirds seemed hardly glad, spite of the honey everywhere. The very sunshine seemed to wear some thought of death caught in its gold that made it waver wan and cold. Then with what broken voice he had, the preacher slowly murmured on with many warnings to the bad, the virtues of the doll now gone. 
Well, the parenthesis just, it's a flag, you know, to us to pay attention as readers to the fact that this is not a funeral of a doll. Um, and that in some sense, while the narrator is, she's making fun of funerary traditions. And I think actually um, conventional grief because it's inadequate, um, but she alerts us to that. And we, we, if my students love this poem, partly because I read it to them. Mm. And many of them at the end are weeping. Wow. So, and we, then we track the way that the voices work through the poem. And when we, when, after we've done uh, after I've finished reading it, we go back and, and I'll ask them, okay, where did you first sense that there was more going on than this just description of a, of a funeral of a doll? And I mean, they ultimately end up all the way back in the first stanza, which you don't necessarily pay attention to when you see the title. Where do they go in the first stanza? Is there, is there a particular moment they tend to um, cite? Or they just say you can already tell it there? No, I think by really the middle of the first stanza, never troubled anyone, and then her pretty life was done, it just seems too precious. Mm -hmm. And then the, the wax and saint, is, mm -hmm. they just feel that it's over the top. Mm -hmm. how can a doll be a waxing saint there's got to be more to this poem and this morning ritual than uh than meets the eye huh. so there's a re retrospective reading and i think that happens so often with pia you just have to read the poems over and over and over again mm -hmm. and you know even then it's like with dickinson you feel as though every time you come to it mm -hmm. you see something new now, with your um, vast amount of scholarship in many, many, many women poets, uh, you know, this is something unique you, um, you bring to all of us in your work. There are many scholars who have focused on several recovered writers or one recovered writer, but you've worked with so many uh, women's poetic voices. Um, I'm curious, do you think that you mentioned that Sarah can be extremely funny, and I agree, uh, funny in a very dark way. W would you say more generally, do you think there are particular features of Sarah's poetic voice that mark her as unique or distinct in this larger arena of women poets in the 19th century? Wow, that's a, that's a really tough question. Yeah, it is. When I was putting together the 19th century American women writers anthology. I'm going to answer this question quite indirectly. Okay. Um, when I was putting together that anthology and Paula had given me this huge sheaf of Piet poems, I chose poems uh, on several bases. I chose her selections on several bases. One, I tried to represent the full range of her career as we then knew it. Of course, You've done so much wonderful work and recovered so many more of her earlier poems. I tried to represent different Piat voices. 
I tried to choose those that would appeal to students. And very importantly, I tried to choose poems that could appear in conversation with other women poets. Frances Harper, Emily Dickinson, Lucy Larkham, Alice Carey, Lydia Sigourney, Lizette Woodworth Reese, and even um, the early American sampler verses, which were stitched onto fabric. I mean, there's one that, that I love, I can quote it for you. Adam alone in paradise did grieve and fought Eden, a desert without Eve, until God pitying of his lonesome state crowned all his wishes with a loving mate. What reason then hath man to slight or flout her? that could not live in paradise without her. All right? So, I mean, Piat's right in that vein, all right? So um, I was looking for moments of connection. So Harper and Piat's Civil War poetry, um, the humorous poetry, uh, Sigourney and, and Piat and so on. But you did ask me what I found distinctive about her. And one of the things that I, I, I have struggled to try to understand, and I'm, I'm not there yet, but it's her descriptions of nature. Because, of course, you know, I'm very interested in environmental writing and nature writing. And her descriptions of nature, nature is not about nature in Pia. Yeah, good. Whereas in many of the other poets, it is. I mean, I'm thinking about trumpet flowers, for example, or giving back the flower. Mm -hmm. Nature is always something else. Wow. And there's a kind of, um, I don't want to say disembodiment, but there's a a resistance to corporeality in her poems that I don't find in many of the other poets. Perhaps the the person who comes closest is Frances Harper for obvious reasons, because as a black woman poet uh, with the, the the history of enslaved people in the United States and the treatment, the horrific treatment of black women, um, many black women poets wanted to separate themselves from embodiment quite reasonably and uh, expectedly. So that's, to me, nature in Pia, because I actually wanted to include her in, you know, some of my, my environmental writing, and I haven't found a way to do it yet. Wow, that's, that's super interesting. Um, that's not something I had uh, noticed before or conceived of, but the minute you say it, it makes perfect sense. Like I, I, the minute you said that, I was like, that is totally right. I mean, so interesting. I hadn't thought of it before. And, you know, uh, of course, just helping our uh, listeners to understand the broader context, if they're new to poetry, you know, we're talking about uh, a time period when nature poetry is kind of one of the standard kinds of poetry, uh, you know, people know it, they like it, they love it, they read it, they recite it, they share it. I mean, it's just a, and and there's a very, such a powerful romantic tradition of writing about nature at the time. And as you're saying this, Karen, I'm thinking, um, you know, and I'm going to continue to think about this after we finish talking today, obviously, but, you know, I, I think of Sarah as a, a poet who writes a lot about places, 
you know, like she writes poems about Ireland and, and you know, she yep. writes poems about this or that place I visited, about Harrison's tomb near her house in, uh, you know, in Cleves, Ohio. And so she, so she writes a lot about very precise locations. But now that you're saying this, I'm realizing, but they're not nature poems. So that's really very interesting. Well, uh, I hope somebody will write about it and teach yeah. me about it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Great. And, um, you know, the other thing you you were talking about that maybe we can swing back to, it, it relates to what you said about her being a darkly humorous poet. Um, and also the issue of the voices. You mentioned that Funeral of a Doll is a poem in a complex kind of dramatic voice. And, and of course, this is one of the things that, um, especially for new readers of poetry, you have to help them with in Sarah's poems that you often don't know who's speaking. She doesn't identify the speaker. She might or might not give you quotation marks. She often toggles among multiple voices, some of whom are in quotation marks and others of whom are not. And you have to figure out who the characters are basically. Um, but you know, so there was a lot, there's a lot going on with the complexity of voice in Sarah, as you know, and, but it's also an issue, not only of a lot of character voices, but of like rhetorical mode. Yes. So, you know, yes. just to, just to clarify for our listeners, and then I'd love to hear you talk about this a little bit, we could say, well, she's got a humorous voice. She's, um, Paula Bennett's um, argument about Sarah is that she was fundamentally an ironic poet. Um, so she has a voice for adults and a voice for children. And a lot of times these are all mixed into one poem. Yeah. Um, so, so do you think that that, um, writing in that kind of array of voices is something you see among a lot of women poets? Um, do you think that the irony that, that Paula Bennett flagged, you know, this is Sarah's key mode. Do you think that is, something that Sarah handles in a way that is um, not necessarily something we're finding more broadly across women's poetry of the time. I think the only, all of the poets that I mentioned earlier have multiple voices, but none as many huh. as Sarah and none use with such frequency. I think many of the others tend to follow in sort of clusters of modes. So for example, you might say that the Carey sisters wrote predominantly sentimental poetry, but they did also write some culturally dissenting poetry, such as Phoebe Carey's um, poems, The Parodies. And also Alice Carey's, one of my favorite poems, The Seaside Cave, which is, it's Poe-esque, but it's also very much um, a critique of Poe and uh, the men who romanticized women. So uh, yeah, I think other than Dickinson, no one has her, her range. And I think she was, oh, almost uniquely capable of calibrating that range for the audience that she was planning to reach. Huh. Now this takes us to another topic that um, you can really help us with. And of course here I'm 
I'm posing the question, having had the, the terrific experience of uh, reading Who Killed American Poetry, from national obsession to elite possession. Um, and for our listeners, we'll focus for a minute on that subtitle, From National Obsession to Elite Possession. Um, and this is tied to what you were saying earlier about how understandings of poetry, uh, what it's for, who reads it, and so on, are shifting by the end of the century. Um, can you talk a little bit, um, Karen, about how you feel that the culture of reviewing that you, you break down in such scholarly depth in this book, how did um, being reviewed uh, affect Sarah's career or her reception? Can you talk a little bit about reception for Sarah? It's, it's one of your unique areas, I think. Well, she was fortunate to be very widely reviewed, not just nationally, but internationally. I think that um, one of the key features of her reviewing history was the fact that William Dean Howells, who was uh, at one point, of course, the powerful editor of the Atlantic Monthly and a proponent of literary realism, was uh, a supporter. I mean, he was critical of her in some ways. He didn't get her. Mm -hmm. He was, as you well know, um, friends with Sarah's husband, JJ, and they had published a, a book of poems together. But uh, Howells, I think, kind of set the standard in some ways for P.S. reputation. But it wasn't just Howells. I mean, it was the reviewing climate after the Civil War. The Civil War, as I talk about in Who Killed American Poetry, was a kind of hiatus period when a lot of the, the uh, criteria that reviewers had been emphasizing earlier in the century were suspended for a period. Um, I will say going back to uh, your, our, our discussion about nature and nature in Pia was that throughout the century, nature as a theme was, it, it was a prototypically American theme. Yeah. Now how that was handled differed over the period and how uh, reviewers understood it differed over the course of the century. But that was a very important theme. So, but also, of course, the most important thing in regard to Sarah is emotion and the ways that she handled emotion. Sentimentalism before the Civil War and during, sentimentalism before the Civil War very much approved in American poetry generally, sentimentalism and emotion. I mean, it was manly emotion and womanly emotion. During the Civil War, of course, a very emotional time, it was fine. After that period, people began to, the critics, that is to say, began to assign it almost exclusively to women. This despite the fact that I think, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the review I quote, I think it's in 1820, it's in the early 1820s, 
of the epic poem, Yamoidan, where the critic is, he doesn't like the emotionalism in the poem. So there are the roots of this anti-emotion, anti-sentimentalism very early on, but, but it really comes to the fore and the critique of sentimentalism and emotion, excess emotion comes to the fore after the Civil War and um, Piat and Lucy Larkham, the two figures that I talk about at some length, um, both were subjected to that as a criteria. Now, as you know, from reading the book, there was a huge amount of disagreement. Some people felt that because she was expressing her emotion in relation to children and loss, that it was acceptable. The trouble with that is that it consigned her to minor status. So, Right, I mean, there was good and bad to that association. But more or less, the critics really didn't know what to do with her. Um, some said she was obscure, some said she wasn't. Some said she was overly emotional. Some said there's no emotion in her poetry at all. Yeah. Um, and, but, but one of the, the key things that she was critiqued for was obscurity. Because in that era, when, I mean, clarity had always been a virtue of American poetry, but in that era when realism was emerging really forcefully in American poetry, um, obscurity was not something that the critics could, could tolerate. And uh, as one critic said, that way, uh, madness and Browningism lie. <laughs> yes. Now, okay. How about um, maybe this is an opportune time to talk about Browning? Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, um, what what's your sense of Browning's importance to Sarah? Well. I think he was very important to her. I mean, his dramatic poems clearly had a, had a profound influence on her. It's, it's very interesting, of course, that the Browning societies that were so popular in the United States were mostly peopled by women. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that it was part of her a developing mode, although I think the seeds of it were, were there early on. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, certainly, um, you know, we mentioned earlier her earliest poems when she's not yet Sarah Piot, but she's yeah. Sally and Brian, yes. publishing in the top newspapers of the age. Um, those poems are full of dramatic poems. Yes. And I like to focus on this for our listeners because, um, you know, as, as you also know, and you work a lot with poetry in the classroom, there's, there's often a default assumption among our contemporaries today that poems are always essentially lyric poems, by which I mean just for, for our audience's um, greater understanding, if they're unfamiliar with poetry, basically a poem that's always someone talking about their own personal emotions or subjectivity, just like a pure record of how I feel. And... Um, in the 19th century, when poetry was so popular and so so much a part of everyday life, 
um, you know, people were very flexible about recognizing poems of all different kinds, and they didn't have that default assumption. Uh, and of course, we're talking about an age when, you know, Shakespeare is one of the most popular writers in America. The, you know, going to see Shakespeare is very popular. It's not elite. It's not highbrow. So the idea that you would deal with reading poems that are essentially character voices um, and, and think of that as something to really enjoy is maybe something our culture today um, doesn't connect with as much. And, and uh, Sarah certainly was writing in that mode. Um, uh, I had a graduate student a few years ago, I'll just mention quickly, Karen, who did a, who did a, a paper tracking how Sarah and JJ were discussed frequently in the press as the phrase was wedded poets akin to the Brownings. Um, and so, you know, we end up having that other connection with, of course, his much more famous wife at the time, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, right. uh, and Robert Browning with the Piazz. I'm sorry, uh, Karen, I think uh, yes. I interrupted you. No, 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 no. Well, and of course, um, the, the critique of Browning that he was obscure. <laughs> Same critique that, that Sarah got. Yes, but yeah. What I was going to say is that um, you know, we can go back to one of my favorite poems, Giving Back the Flower, which is profoundly dramatic mm -hmm. and, um, and stunningly modern. Now, you know, I was going to ask you, I think, in fact, after today, that our conversation has inspired me. I think I'm going to wrap up every one of these interviews asking people if they can tell us the titles of a few of their favorite poems by Sarah. Um, and as you well know, because you've also done a lot of work with uh, Paula Bennett, um, this was the first poem of Sarah's she encountered. It's a big part of her origin story. Um, so it's very interesting that that's one of your favorites. Can you tell us a little bit about um, why it strikes you and maybe we can get people reading it? Well, <clears throat> the poem, which is a Civil War era poem, um, a beloved, presumably speaking to her uh, dead beloved uh, on after, yeah, um, is it's set in very long lines. Uh, and That's unusual for her, right? The lines are, her lines aren't usually that long. Well, it's unusual for almost every poet in the 19th century. And it's, it's very conversational. It's very intimate. It's very private. Um, it's also very angry. And uh, anger is still an emotion forbidden to women. But certainly in the 19th century, it was uh, not an emotion that women were expected to or even able to express. And so... I think that's one of the reasons that this poem seems so compelling to me. Yeah, that's a great point about um, Sarah's angry voice. And, and uh, you're getting me thinking about other places where we might talk about that as well. Definitely you hear it in some of the uh, relatively small number of letters that we have to date actually written by Sarah. And you can hear that voice coming out sometimes and she's not, she's not gonna apologize for it. Um, this was also interestingly one of the poems, as you know, chosen by John Hollander. 
when he did his Library America of Edition, uh, Library of America edition of 19th century American poetry, and he chose this one. So, you know, sometimes when I when I talk, especially with first wave scholars like yourself, um, and maybe we can talk about this for a few minutes now before we run out of time, is um, where you think we are in the recovery and where you think it might need to go. Um, I sometimes like to talk to people about what they think at the present time have become the signature poems by Piot. Uh, we know that it will evolve over time, but where we are with that now, and given that you picked this one, Hollander picked it, Paula picked it, I'm thinking this might be one of those poems. I, I think definitely. Um, the Funeral of a Doll, I, I think it should be one of her signature poems. It's funny because uh, as I was preparing for our conversation, I also decided I wanted to look back at Sarah's surfacing in anthologies generally. And I don't unfortunately have access to the tables of contents of recent, this, I think the seventh edition of the Heath. Uh, and I don't know what edition the Norton is, is at, but I thought it would be very interesting to see what poems those anthologies were presenting. I think Palace Burner, of course, is going to be on everyone's list. I was looking at um, William Spangeman the William Spangeman anthology that Jess Roberts did with him. And Palace Burner is the first poem in that collection. But um, I don't think I, maybe Army of Occupation I would have chosen, but I'm not sure I would have chosen any of the others as my favorites anyway. Um, I think the Fancy Ball is on a lot of lists right now. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, yes, it's, it's in mine. I think her, one of her last poems, well, there's just so many, Inspiration and Poem, A Mistake in the Bird Market, A New Thanksgiving, which I may have been her last published poem, that or Daffodils, I forget which one. But I mean, that's, that's A New Thanksgiving is a hair-raising poem. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, speaking of her, her dark and angry voice. Uh -huh. As far as where we are in her recovery, I'm, I'm disturbed and worried. I mean, I think there are great possibilities. I think the work that you are doing is absolutely crucial. The reason I say that I'm a little concerned is I went to the MLA online bibliography and they aren't updated through the present. They're, they only cover 2001 to 2018 for Sierra. Huh. But in that list, there were only 19 entries, two of which were dissertations, one of which was Paula's Palace Burner, and one of which was Elaine Showalter's anthology, The Vintage Book of American Women Writers. Now, none of the four articles that we did for ESQ in honor of Paula have yet shown up. Who Killed American Poetry hasn't shown up. But still, we're only, even if we add those, we're only at 24. Mm -hmm. So um, we, we, there's work to be done. And so I guess we need to say that there are challenges and opportunities. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I'm always encouraging people to do, because I think it's a very productive strategy in getting people back in the canon, is what I did in Soft Cannons 
which was the collection I did, I don't remember the date, sometime in the early 2000s, where I asked contributors to pair a woman writer uh, who needed to be recovered with a canonical or well-known male writer. Um, because to get that kind of leg legibility, we, we almost have to invite our colleagues and our students to read, and they won't read if it's just an article on Pia. They're much more likely to read if it's an article on Pia and Dickinson, for example, or yeah. Pia and Whitman, um, which to my knowledge, nobody has done yet. But um, I think as a strategy, that's, that's something that um, we need to do. We need to, to the degree that we're able to influence anthologists to try to ensure that she continues to be in anthologies. Um, I hope to include, or expect to include some of her work uh, in The Envious Lobster, which will enable teachers to access her. And if we can I wonder, get- I wanted to ask you about that, if she'd yeah. be included here. So if we can get teachers um, at various levels to include her, in their syllabi, I think that will move things forward a great deal, if, if, especially if students acquire an early taste, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, you know, um, one of the questions I sometimes get, um, this came up in a podcast uh, that my Rare Books curator, Jolie Braun, and I did with the Women Writers Podcast, Bonnets at Dawn, and the host said to us, did, did we feel that one of the um, more unique obstacles confronting Piat's recovery is simply that we're working in the domain of poetry as opposed to fiction? I think that's definitely true. I mean, po students are still poem averse. Yes. And yeah. Those of us who teach poetry and you know you know I teach at a minority serving institution with huge numbers of first generation university students and so many of them have not really encountered much poetry um, much academic poetry in their earlier careers and so uh, it, it can be an uphill climb on the other hand there are ways to do it I taught my literature in the environment class last fall. And one of the assignments was, let me back up a bit, the emphasis for the course was environmental racism and environmental justice. And one of the main texts for the course was a wonderful anthology edited by Camille Dungy called Black Nature, which is multiple centuries of Black poets writing about nature. And every day, one student had to choose a poem to read and talk about and explain his or her connection to that poem. And I think that really helped them a great deal. That's a great assignment. I think I'm going to borrow that. I like that assignment. Very good. Yeah. Um, well, Karen, we, we just have a couple more minutes and uh, then we need to wrap up. I wonder if there are any other um, thoughts about Sarah or her recovery that you might like to close with um, before we sign off? Oh my, 
Um, very, very general question, but uh, thought I'd just see if we didn't get to something that you had hoped we might talk about. Well, as you know, I could talk about Piet. Well, yeah, you, know, you and I are both in that club. I, I have to be shut down myself or I will just keep going. Exactly. Well, I would, I would still like to see Piat placed in the company, not just of, you know, canonical male poets, but also her contemporaries in um, fuller detail than Paula was able to do in her groundbreaking book. Yeah. Um, it, a one really, I think, helpful approach might be to look at the way that Piat forecasts the poets who come after her. And now I'm thinking about one of my favorites, uh, Lizette Woodworth Reese, who I think is incredibly undervalued. Okay. So those kinds of studies, but you know, we just generally need more scholarship on her, more teaching of her, more ways to get her voice out, more ways to help people understand the complexity, the virtuosity of her work. Mm -hmm. And um, not last but not least, we need your biography. <laughs> oh, the biography is so much fun. I, I love working on it. And there's so much to discover, as you know, um, one of the challenges with dealing with a figure like this about whom there is no biography other than the sketches published in her own time. And then the, um, the very, very helpful biographical sketches that first wave scholars like yourself included in their anthologies um, is, you know, going out there and, and finding more records. Um, yeah. We yeah. only have so much to work with. And um, so it's fascinating and it continues to remind me. And, and this goes back to me saying to you, you know, we have, it sounds like you you sense the same thing. We we have something of an obstacle in our current culture with a resistance to poetry, but but um, as as Paula pointed out from the very beginning, uh, Sarah is so tied to so many major cultural uh, you know cataclysms that that um, talking about her through that lens I think is very appealing to our contemporaries and. Um, teaching them some, some poems along the way. Um, I think this can be a real contribution to our public culture right now. Well, she is a unique, powerful voice who really deserves much broader attention. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're, we're trying to make it happen. Well, thank you again, Karen. Thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for uh, being there to, um, bring Sarah back to attention in the first wave of scholarship. And uh, I look forward to seeing um, uh, where you go with your forthcoming work. And uh, thank you for talking to us today. Discovering Sarah, America's Lost Great Writer, is produced and recorded in Columbus, Ohio, with the support of The Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Technology Services Studio, The Ohio State University Rare Books and Manuscripts Library, and The Ohio State University Knowledge Bank. Sound engineering by Paul Kotheimer, produced by Kayla Probion, and featuring the song The Heresy of Paraphrase by songwriter One Man Book.